Hello everyone and welcome to Classic Gaming Today, where we take a look at the gaming experiences of the past through the eyes of the present. I am your host Tony, and today we're going to look at Pilot Wings, a flight simulator title developed and published by Nintendo for the Super Famicom in Japan in 1990, with a North American release rocket belting the market in 1991 as a launch title for the Super Nintendo Entertainment System, before hang gliding over to European markets in 1992. We are going to talk about that game in just a couple minutes, but first, as is usual, just a little bit of housekeeping up front. This is episode number 73. I am excited to be here. I hope all of you are as well. If you'd like to reach out, let me know how I'm doing, provide feedback, comments, suggestions, or just talk about classic games and technology in general. I would love to hear from you, and there are a few ways you can reach out. I have an X account with the handle at ClassicGamingT. I have an email address, which is ClassicGamingToday at gmail.com. And we have a Discord server. The link is in the show notes. Discord is the best way to get in touch with me and the rest of the community around this podcast. We have a ton of fun out on Discord. We have great discussions. We do our weekly gaming challenge with a whole coins-based redemption system. It is a lot of fun. So if that sounds like fun to you, check us out over on Discord. I should also mention that we have a Patreon. It is patreon.com slash classic gaming today. So if you want even more classic gaming today goodness, including an exclusive bi-weekly podcast expansion pack, patreon.com slash classic gaming today is where it's at. I'd also like to give a shout out to our Pantheon patrons. They are ISO, Rich Senewal, David Morton, and Sam Twardowski. Thank you guys for supporting the show. Thank you all for supporting the show, whether you contribute monetarily or simply listen on a regular basis. I truly do appreciate all of the support. For anyone who may be new, welcome. I just want to give a brief overview of the anatomy of an episode because, for the most part, all of our episodes follow a very similar format and structure. We will always start by talking about the history of the game in question, the historical context, how was the game made, why was the game made. And then we move into a pseudo-review kind of section. And I say pseudo-review because it's not like we assign numerical rankings or star counts or anything like that. But we do talk about every single game from several different perspectives. We take a look at the graphics. How does the game look? The sound and music. How does the game sound? The narrative and or story, if the game has one. Playability and controls and overall feel. What does it feel like to play the game today versus when it was released 20, 30, maybe even 40 plus years ago? We do all of that to reach a verdict as far as how well the game holds up today. And to do that, we assign each game to one of several categories. At the very top of our list is the Pantheon of Classic Gaming. If a game reaches the Pantheon, you know it is that darn good. It is a certifiable classic. You should go out of your way to play those games today. Just beyond the Pantheon are our Golden Oldies. These are still really good games. I still highly recommend you play them, especially if you enjoy the genre in which the game lives. You are almost guaranteed to have a good time. They're not quite Pantheon level, but they are still really worthwhile experiences, and I still highly encourage you to play them today. Beyond the Golden Oldies, we reach our Mediocre Mentions. This is where we start getting into the realm of games that I cannot recommend to the broad population. They might have aged a little bit, might have had a couple of issues to begin with. You may still have a good time, especially if you enjoy the genre in which the game lives. By all means, go for it. But I cannot recommend these games to the broad gaming population. And then beyond the mediocre mentions, we reach the footnotes. These are the games that are best left in the annals of history. I have played them, so you don't have to. I cannot recommend anyone play these titles today. They have either aged incredibly poorly, or they may not have been all that great to begin with. With that out of the way, we're going to start talking about the game of the day. That is Pilot Wings.
Pilot Wings is a flight simulator title developed and published by Nintendo for the Super Famicom in Japan in 1990 with North American and European releases following in the coming years. Before we can talk about Pilot Wings, we need to take a step back and talk about the concept of flight simulation in general, which can actually be traced all the way back to 1910, which is when the Antoinette Barrel was created for pilots to train on. Nowadays, when we think about flight simulators, we often think about digital representations of the act of flying, oftentimes with a bunch of special control sticks, rudders, throttles, and other peripherals attached to computers to simulate the feel of flying a variety of aircraft. Back in 1910, though, the concept of a digital anything wasn't even a thing, as computers were still years from being built, and even televisions wouldn't exist until 17 years later. Which is to say, the very first flight simulation device was a decidedly analog and manual contraption. Spurred on by a quickly expanding desire to tame the skies after George and Orville Wright's first manned-powered flight in 1903, a variety of companies would begin creating aircraft for adventurous pilots to begin using, with French engine manufacturer Antoinette being one of the leaders in developing airplane engines for use by French aviation companies. Antoinette found swift success with their airplane engines, and in 1908, decided to enter the aircraft market itself with the release and flight of the Antoinette II monoplane. That airplane design would continue to be refined with future models released on a regular basis, and it turns out, Antoinette was fairly adept as an aircraft manufacturer, as airplanes released based on Antoinette's designs were routinely used to set multiple aviation records across France. Now, just to put that into perspective... An example of an aviation record around this time might be something like fly a plane for 67 minutes straight. Recall that in the early 1900s, flight was still a very new thing, so expectations for what planes could actually do were decidedly lower than what we're used to today. While Antoinette was successful in building its airplane business, there was just one problem. The overall cockpit controls were anything but intuitive, with nary a flight stick in sight. Instead, the plane would operate using a singular rudder bar attached to two wheels, one of which would control the craft's ability to bank left or right, while the other would control elevation. If that sounds confusing to visualize, it's because it absolutely is, and apparently piloting the airplane wasn't any simpler. Which is why in 1910, when Antoinette landed a military contract with the French government to develop a two-seat aircraft, French military leaders knew better instructional aids needed to be created. Otherwise, their pilots would have significant difficulty learning how to pilot these planes. So, Antoinette got to work on what would become the first flight simulation device, which is what resulted in the creation of the previously mentioned Antoinette Barrel in 1910. That name, Antoinette Barrel, might conjure up certain images in your head, and you might be wondering why it was named the Antoinette Barrel in the first place. Well, the reason for the interesting name is because the device was literally made out of a wooden barrel that was cut in half. Prospective pilots would climb into that barrel, which was placed upon a platform of sorts, and then be tasked with maintaining level flight, all the while a couple of operators on the outside of the simulator would pull and push on the quote-unquote wings of the aircraft to simulate turbulence and actual motion. Yes, you heard that right. The first flight simulator involved a pilot sitting in a wooden barrel that had been sawn in half, with a couple guys outside shaking the thing as though it were flying through the sky. To say that the Antoinette barrel was not the best simulation of actual flight would be an understatement. But as with most things, these early and primitive efforts would pave the way to a number of higher quality innovations over the years. And speaking of innovation... The next major technological leap in flight simulators would occur almost 20 years later, which is when a man named Edwin Link created the device known as the Link Trainer. Edwin Link, as a trained pilot, lamented the lack of meaningful flight training, short of actually flying in an airplane itself, which could sometimes be impacted by external factors like weather. He envisioned a device that could simulate the feeling of flight, all the while never having to take off from the ground, and he wanted to make the experience as realistic as possible. So, he began building the device he envisioned, which would consist of a metal frame similar to an actual airplane cockpit design, and began filling that cockpit with real airplane instrumentation, while also designing a pneumatic platform that could simulate the feeling of flight without needing to rely on literal manpower to maneuver the aircraft. This combination of real-world devices, air-powered pneumatic motion, and an enclosure that looked roughly like an actual airplane are the core components of what made up the Link Trainer, which upon its creation would absolutely fall flat, with nobody really wanting to spend money on the device, despite the fact that it was perhaps the best flight simulation system that existed at the time. 
Despite Link's best efforts in selling the product, which included demonstrations to various flight schools as well as the United States Air Force, there was just little interest in the simulator. That would all change in 1934, which is when the United States Army Air Force, or USAAF, was given a government contract to deliver mail, which would require pilots to fly in both clear skies as well as less favorable weather conditions, a situation that not many pilots had experience or training with. The end result of that inexperience was the death of almost a dozen USAAF pilots in the first few weeks of the contract, which is absolutely crazy to think about. Obviously, there was a serious issue with the training available to Air Force pilots, and it didn't take long before military leadership recognized that they needed to implement a change. Luckily for them, they recalled Edwin Link's simulator demonstration from years prior, and they reached back out to him to see if he might be willing to work together after all. Link graciously accepted their invitation, and he ended up flying to meet them in pretty horrible weather, landing eventually at Newark Field in New Jersey. The Air Force was impressed by Link's flying skills, especially in bad weather, which they realized was the result of Link's prior experience training in his Link Trainer Simulator. That was pretty much all the proof the Air Force needed of its effectiveness, and they ordered six Link Trainers on the spot to help address the deficiency in their own pilot's training. With that sale, the flight simulation industry was effectively born, and over the years, a number of more advanced devices would be created for military, commercial, and civil aviation use and the Link Trainer would become the very first device to really gain traction in the market, with over 10,000 simulators built in the 10 years that followed its initial purchase. At this point, we're going to fast forward a bit, because my intent is not to discuss the entire history of flight simulators in general, but I did want to at least set the stage for the rest of our discussion by talking about where the concept of simulation-based flight originated. As you might imagine, in the years following the Link Trainer's dominance, the flight simulation industry would continue to evolve, eventually implementing digital technology to augment the more mechanical aspects of flight simulation machines, with machines that not only created the sense of motion, but also married that motion simulation with screens that would show the world, so to speak, that a simulator was traveling through, along with piped-in sounds, all in the hopes of creating the most realistic simulation of flight possible. While those simulators would be used across numerous aviation domains over a period of decades, the next stop on our flight simulation journey is 1975, which is when the very first flight simulator designed for home computer systems would be created. That first flight simulator was designed by a man named Bruce Artwick, a computer and electrical engineering college student who, while attending the University of Illinois, became infatuated with the concept of aviation. In addition to the schoolwork required by his major, Artwick would spend countless hours at the Aviation Research Lab, where he began developing his own knowledge while, at the same time, contributing to the research being performed at that lab. In fact, Artwick's interest in aviation had deepened so much that he ended up getting his pilot's license while at school, somehow finding time in between studies to accomplish that impressive feat. When Artwick wasn't researching aviation or soaring through the skies himself, he was working on computer graphics for the university's Digital Computer Lab, where he and his fellow students learned a great deal about the methods for creating and displaying graphics on computer terminals, a technology that at this point was still in its early stages of development. Over the course of his school and career, Artwick obtained both a bachelor's and master's degree in electrical engineering, not to mention all of the additional expertise he gathered in both flight and computer graphics. Luckily for Artwick, all of those extracurricular pursuits would be put to good use, as he was able to leverage all aspects of his college experience to create his master's degree thesis, which demonstrated a computerized mechanism for modeling, simulating, and displaying an aircraft flying on a computer screen, all running on what were, at the time, standard computer parts as opposed to the kinds of systems typically used at educational institutions, like mainframes and supercomputers. For the first time ever, a digital representation of a flight simulator was available for use on a personal computer. Artwick followed that thesis up by creating a company, Sublogic, whose focus was the continued development and expansion of personal computer-based flight simulators for home users, relying on mail-based distribution for software releases, as was common amongst smaller software development companies of the time. The company's first order of business was to take the flight simulator Artwick created for his thesis and begin porting it to various computer platforms, with the first version of the software releasing on the Apple II in 1977, followed shortly thereafter with a release on the Radio Shack TRS-80, one of the first non-Apple mass-produced personal computers on the market. 
While we've talked about the fact that most computers around this time were thought of as productivity machines as opposed to gaming devices, Sublogic software kind of straddled the fence between the two. Sure, Sublogic's flight simulator was never going to help you balance your checkbook, but it also wasn't one of those overtly video game titles that the majority of the younger generation were playing in arcades around the world. That rare mix of potentially serious software combined with leisure activity propelled Sublogic to unexpected heights, and in just a few years after becoming a company, Sublogic was seeing massive sales numbers. In fact, the company's flight simulator software would become the best-selling piece of software for Apple, owing largely to the fact that it appealed to a wide variety of computer users. It didn't take long before other companies began to take notice of Sublogic's success, as well as Artwick's unique combination of aviation know-how and engineering prowess. One company in particular had a keen interest in partnering with and licensing Sublogic software for use in their own flight simulator package, scheduled for release in 1982. That company was Microsoft, and that flight simulator package was none other than the very first Microsoft flight simulator release. I'd venture a guess and say that most people who have played on a computer in their lives have at some point fired up one of the countless versions of Microsoft flight simulator programs, as they have literally existed in some form or another for over 40 years. Back with the first release in the series, Microsoft utilized Sublogic's flight simulation software and effectively rebranded it, though rather than looking at it as a purely simulation-based focus, as Artwick and the Sublogic team had, Microsoft instead wanted to use Flight Simulator as both an advanced simulator as well as a technical showcase for computer graphics, which is exactly what they did as they continued to license the software and develop their own custom editions. While Microsoft and Sublogic, along with Artwick's next company, BAO Limited, would continue working together for years, eventually Microsoft would purchase the Flight Simulator intellectual property in its entirety, making it solely owned and developed by Microsoft. With the release of Flight Simulator across multiple computer platforms, computer users were quickly becoming enamored with the concept of testing their piloting skills from the comfort of their den, and with that increased interest came many other companies entering the simulation market. And these new entrants ran the gamut from civil aviation products like Microsoft's Flight Simulator to more militaristic simulations like the Falcon series published by Spectrum Holobyte, and even pseudo-space simulators like Elite and Wing Commander. It didn't take long before computer users had their choice of flight simulation products. If you had a particular niche you wanted to experience, chances are there was some piece of software that would let you have that experience. So, if you were a computer user and a flight simulation lover, life was good. But, what if you didn't have a computer, or you simply preferred playing games on home consoles or in the arcades? Well, the fact is... There were plenty of games focused on recreating the act of flying too, such as Afterburner, Top Gun, Captain Skyhawk, and F-15 Strike Eagle. There was just one issue. The majority, if not all, of flight simulation software in arcades and on home consoles were primarily focused on the act of flight combat, because combat flight simulators are a pretty straightforward thing to create within the framework of a gaming construct. Think about it. You can get points by shooting down bad guys, you can have missions with clearly defined objectives that denote success or failure, and you can even build in other gamey elements like extra lives and boss fights. Especially when you consider that many of the earliest arcade titles were space shooters, adding in more realistic quote-unquote simulation elements seemed like a natural fit. But what if you didn't really want to experience combat, but instead simply wanted to fly around an open world, marveling at the environment instead of carpet bombing it? Well, the fact is, if you were a console gamer, you were pretty much out of luck, as more general civil aviation doesn't really lend itself well to a game. Sure, you could technically create a game where you fly around a map, but for what purpose? And more importantly, would something like that even be fun? While nobody knew the answer to that question, as the late 80s rolled around, one company was about to try to find out. That company was none other than Nintendo, the console giant who had taken the 80s by storm through the release of their 8-bit home console, the Nintendo Entertainment System, or NES. Nintendo dominated the home video game market of the 1980s, but as the decade was coming to a close, they began to face increased competition by a number of different companies like NEC and Sega, who had begun to develop brand new 16-bit consoles that were being marketed as the next generation of home console entertainment. Nintendo recognized that if they were going to remain relevant in the market, 
they'd have to begin working on new hardware themselves, which is what drove the company to begin working on their own 16-bit hardware, known as the Super Famicom in Japan and the Super Nintendo Entertainment System, or SNES, in other geographic regions. When Nintendo began working on their own 16-bit console, they realized that they were facing an uphill battle, as other companies were in the process of beating them to market in the 16-bit console space. Entering the market late was not an unfamiliar position for Nintendo to be in, as when they first began creating the Nintendo Famicom, Atari had already been entrenched in the video game market. The difference was, when Nintendo entered the 8-bit console market, their hardware was dramatically more powerful than that offered by Atari, so trying to convince gamers to buy a Famicom or NES was relatively simple to do. Now, with new 16-bit competitors on the verge of capturing some of Nintendo's market share, the company needed to figure out how to one-up those alternative consoles. From a technological perspective, I don't want to go into the nitty-gritty details of the technical specifications of the system, most of which would be designed to both compete with and in many cases exceed the specifications of their closest competitors. What I do want to focus on, however, is one major technological addition that Nintendo put front and center in the Super Famicom marketing materials, and that is the concept of Mode 7 graphics. When the Super Famicom was being engineered, it was determined that the system would have eight different so-called graphics modes for use on the system, governing how graphics, sprites, and backgrounds would be displayed on the screen. Mode 7 is pretty much the only one that gets any sort of attention whenever you talk to gamers from the 90s, or read published articles from back around that time, because the effect was so different than what had come before. Recall from our Star Fox episode that the Super Famicom, in its default configuration, has no real 3D graphics processing capabilities. The system was designed almost exclusively for two-dimensional graphics and worlds, with three-dimensional capabilities only really possible via add-in chips included on specific cartridges' PCB boards, like the Super FX chip. But Nintendo devised a way to create a pseudo-three-dimensional effect using its base console, by using a combination of perspective correction and image stretching, along with a bunch of linear algebra to transform images and the way they'd be displayed on the screen, Nintendo could make it seem like the player was experiencing a 3D environment, even though the system itself was only using two-dimensional images. That, in a nutshell, is what Mode 7 is. It takes a single background image, it performs a bunch of image transformation operations on it, and then ultimately stretches and scales the image so that from certain viewpoints, the game would appear to be rendering a three-dimensional landscape complete with an actual horizon and the appearance of image depth, meaning you could effectively walk into an image as though you were navigating a world. Now, retrospective analysis of Mode 7 recognizes the technology was amazing at the time, but also recognizes that it doesn't necessarily hold up quite so well from a visual perspective when looked at through a modern lens. It's not like true three-dimensional visuals were playing on a Super Nintendo system. It was, for all intents and purposes, a cool graphical trick. That said, it was also a very effective graphical trick, and even during the Super Famicom's early development, various software prototypes were created to demonstrate the concept of Mode 7 graphics to both the press and the gaming community at large. One of those prototypes was in fact a flight simulator of sorts, and unlike many of the console flight-based games of the time, the focus here was not on airplanes in combat. Instead, you'd maneuver an insect around a battlefield, with the ability to shoot various objects as you navigated around the world in what appeared to be a three-dimensional space. In reality, the game wasn't using 3D visuals at all. It was simply leveraging Mode 7 graphics to create the illusion of depth. But you know what? It was pretty darn effective in doing so. So much so that the concept of creating a flight simulator for the Super Famicom started to get more traction. Eventually, it was decided that this prototype, codenamed Dragonfly, warranted its own full release, and members of Shigeru Miyamoto's Entertainment Analysis and Development Division, or EAD, would be tasked with bringing the full version of this title to life. Nintendo's EAD was a pretty busy group, as you might imagine given Miyamoto's involvement, and the fact that Nintendo leadership relied on Miyamoto as one of the top creative talents in the company. The legendary designer behind Mario, Zelda, Donkey Kong, and countless other titles was Nintendo's go-to person whenever they needed to develop a killer game, and with the Super Famicom near release, Nintendo executives knew they needed to have some stellar launch titles in order to sell their new system, and hopefully knock the already incumbent 16-bit competition off the home console leaderboard. Which is why Miyamoto's EAD group was tasked with creating three brand new games for the Super Famicom's launch window, defined internally as the one-month period following the console's release. 
One of those games was the latest entry in the Super Mario game series, which would eventually evolve into Super Mario World. Another was a futuristic racing title with an up-to-this-point unimaginable sense of speed, which would become F-Zero. And the third was the previously mentioned full version of the Dragonfly prototype, which is the game that would eventually morph into the mostly non-combat flight simulator, Pilot Wings. When Miyamoto's team began bringing Pilot Wings to life, they recognized that historically, non-combat-driven flight simulators were the purview of computers, not home consoles, primarily because nobody had really figured out how to incentivize the act of flying simply for the sake of flying. Beyond that lack of incentivization, most home consoles just weren't as powerful as computers, at least when it came to generating the kinds of three-dimensional visuals that most flight simulation programs relied upon. While 3D in computer games was far from pervasive in the late 80s, the flight simulator genre was the one type of software where three-dimensional worlds were actually a thing. Now, they oftentimes ran very slowly because the computational requirements were pretty high. But still, if you even attempted to run a truly three-dimensional world on a home console of the time, it probably would have blown up. Which is to say, trying to create a non-combat flight simulator on a home console with similar capabilities to computer simulators would only be possible through some ingenious game design, like what Miyamoto's team was known for, coupled with clever graphics programming tricks, which, conveniently enough, is exactly what Nintendo had up its sleeve with their highly marketed Super Famicom Mode 7 graphics. So, the team began working on the title, settling on a framework where rather than simply flying around an open world, the game would be structured around the concept of the player attending a flight school with multiple types of air-based activities, such as light plane piloting, hang gliding, skydiving, and perhaps most uniquely, rocket belting, available for players to partake in. Each type of aircraft would be used in different challenges, with players scoring points based on how well they completed those challenges, and those points contributing to an overall total that would determine whether a player would achieve their newest pilot's license certification or need to repeat the set of challenges in the hopes of future success. Breaking up those civil aviation challenges was a special helicopter rescue stage, where you'd be tasked with piloting a combat helicopter into a war zone in order to complete a rescue mission. All told, Miyamoto and the team added five unique aircraft to the game for players to experience, while also peppering the title with a number of bonus games that added even more variety to the proceedings. Making the game actually appear to be a three-dimensional representation of flight was the job of the team's graphics artists, who, like we talked about, had the Super Famicom's Mode 7 graphics capabilities available to use. The artists began creating the environments for the game, all of which were effectively flat paintings when viewed straight on, but were designed so that as a player moved further away from them, the designs would appear to be three-dimensional. You can see this graphics trickery at work very clearly if you ever try to land on an area of land that, from above, appears to have depth. Standing there on the ground, you see just how much perspective plays a role in creating the illusion of three-dimensional depth, and I think it was ingenious how the artists were able to make the game appear to be three-dimensional, all the while using what was effectively two-dimensional sprite work with minimal to no performance impact. Creating the music for the game would fall to female composer Soyo Oka, who had been hired into Nintendo back in 1987. When Oka joined the company, she was assigned composition duties on the Famicom-exclusive title Grand Prix 2 3D Hot Rally, which was one of the few video game releases to support the Famicom 3D system, which patrons will recognize as one of the technologies we discussed during our History of Virtual Reality Expansion Pack episode several months ago. Mild tangent aside, Oka had always wanted to compose music, and she began writing her own songs when she was around 15 years old, eventually going to college to study music in the hopes of attaining a job as a composer upon graduation. Oka wasn't just interested in any music, though. She had a particular fondness for video game music, and in particular, the work of Koji Kondo, the legendary Nintendo composer who brought the themes for Mario, Zelda, and countless other games to life. While at college, Oka studied Kondo's music, and hoped that one day she would be able to attain a similar level of success. After working on Grand Prix 2, Oka got the chance of a lifetime. Nintendo's EAD team was looking for a composer to work alongside Koji Kondo on their new game, Pilot Wings, and Oka jumped at the opportunity. She ended up composing the majority of the music for the game, getting mentored by Kondo along the way, who would contribute his own music to the helicopter rescue missions. While it's beyond the scope of this episode, Oka would go on to display her talents on a variety of other games, both rearranging classic Kondo themes, like for the Super Mario All-Star Super Nintendo release, as well as composing her own music in the overall Super Mario universe, like the absolutely amazing music included in Super Mario Kart, 
which incidentally we talked about during our Super Mario Kart episode. Anyway, with music, gameplay, graphics, and overall design coming together, Pilot Wings would finally be ready for release and would be available for purchase in Japan a month after the Super Famicom's release in December of 1990. The game would later be localized and included as a launch day title for the North American Super Nintendo release in August of 1991, with a European release following a year later. Regardless of where you lived or who played it, the game was met with an overwhelmingly positive response from gamers and critics alike. Most of the positive praise centered on the revolutionary use of Mode 7 graphics to create an environment that truly felt three-dimensional, which some people described as jaw-dropping while others praised the overall variety of gameplay mechanics as well as the engaging tone of the musical score, as composed by Soyo Oka and powered by the Super Nintendo's advanced, at least for the time, sound hardware. Numerous publications would name Pilot Wings to be one of the best releases for the Super Nintendo, and some have even gone so far as to declare Pilot Wings as one of the best games ever created. Even retrospective analysis continues to hold the game in high regard, with Pilot Wings still widely recognized as a true showcase for the Super Nintendo console, the kind of game that really showed off the potential of what the system could deliver. Despite being a launch title, the Mode 7 graphics in Pilot Wings are generally considered to be some of the best on the console, a true testament to the efforts of Shigeru Miyamoto's EAD team and their dedication to delivering some killer launch titles for the Super Famicom and eventual Super Nintendo releases. Beyond its critical success, Pilot Wings would also sell well commercially, with over 2 million copies sold worldwide in the years following its release. Its success would spawn a series of games, with Pilot Wings 64 releasing on the Nintendo 64 in 1996, and Pilot Wings Resort releasing years later for the Nintendo 3DS in 2011. Pilot Wings would also be recognized amongst the broader population as a significant release in gaming history, with the game being featured in several historical exhibits at museums throughout the world. With the release of Pilot Wings, the home console had finally received a civil aviation-oriented flight simulator, one of, if not the, first game of its kind ever released. And with that release, the concept of flight simulation truly entered into mainstream video game culture. Sure, prior to Pilot Wings, you had a ton of simulators on computers, and you had arcade-styled combat games in arcades and various home video game systems. And you even had the mechanical flight simulators of the past, along with their much more advanced digital and mechanical hybrids that evolved over time. But Pilot Wings was different in that it was a launch title for the next big video game console for Nintendo, the most successful console manufacturer in the world at that point. Putting Pilot Wings, a civil aviation flight simulator, front and center as a Super Famicom and Super Nintendo launch title, was a big deal, and I'd argue it was likely the most prominent flight simulator release in all of video game history, at least for its time. While there would be a number of other more advanced flight simulation titles released over the years, Pilot Wings still represents something truly unique in video game history. As the first home console title that combined cutting-edge pseudo-3D graphics and inventive, non-combat-oriented flight simulation gameplay, Pilot Wings was, for many, their first introduction into the world of flight simulation, and itself represents an interesting and important event in the overall history of flight simulators. While it's unclear if we'll ever get another Pilot Wings release, the original stands on its own as a unique, engaging experience, and one that for many gamers will likely be remembered fondly forever. now going to shift to start talking about what it feels like to play the game today versus when it was released back in 1990 to 1992 depending on where you lived. Pilot Wings, as the name suggests, is a lightweight flight simulator, and if you've ever played a flight simulator before, you might be wondering just how much realism is included here, because some simulators can get 
absolutely crazy with the level of detail, controls, flight mechanics, and all of that stuff. So let's talk through it, but just to get something out of the way up front. Pilot Wings, while certainly a flight simulator, is not a heavy-duty, full-fledged simulation of flight. Rather, it's effectively an approachable pseudo-simulator, providing just enough realism to make people feel like they're flying without overburdening players with a ton of instrumentation and complex controls that require a bunch of practice to understand. At its core, Pilot Wing's goal is to provide players with a number of different flight mini-games of sorts, all offered under the auspices of the player taking part in an in-game flight school, with the goal of acquiring your pilot's license. You'll progress through these lessons sequentially, and four different flight instructors will provide you with various goals and events throughout your playthrough, with a password system allowing you to return to your current lesson if you need to turn off the game for any reason. Each flight instructor is in charge of a different map in the game, and each of those maps have their own layout, landing strips, target pads, and other features. The lessons associated with each flight instructor also have specific events that you need to complete in order to progress, with each event being judged based on several factors. Many of those lessons require some sort of marker to be hit or passed through, like rings or pillars of light balls, and your lesson score is driven partly by your ability to hit those pillars or go through those rings. Other factors include your overall landing accuracy, the amount of time you take to complete your lesson, and the overall speed that you approach your landing with. Those different scoring mechanisms are applied to each event in a given flight instructor's lesson plan, and those events can cover one of four different modes of flight. The first and perhaps most standard method of flight is the light plane, which is effectively an amateur aircraft capable of all of the normal things airplanes can typically do. When you're behind the controls of the light plane, you'll see a behind-the-plane view of the action, and you can accelerate and decelerate, bank side to side, and increase and decrease your altitude. Most of the missions associated with the light plane involve flying through a series of rings before lining up your runway approach and eventually landing. A couple missions do also include the takeoff procedure, which is pretty much the simplest form of a takeoff imaginable. You accelerate to max speed, press down on the controller to edge your nose up, and you eventually take off. By the way, it probably bears mentioning that the control scheme for the game follows the normal flight simulator kinds of controls, with down corresponding to increasing altitude, which is your height if anyone needs a refresher on aviation terms, and up corresponding to decreasing your altitude. Banking left and right corresponds to the normal left and right directions on your controller's D-pad. Moving on, the next mode of flight included in the game is the skydive, which presents a tops-down view of the game world. Here, you float above your skydiver, and your goal is to descend through a series of rings. You have control over the overall orientation of your body, and can either make yourself more vertical, which increases your velocity and speed, or flatten yourself out, which makes you fall slower, but also inhibits mobility. Maneuvering in different directions involves angling your body in the direction you want to go in, but you do have to be careful, as you can sometimes begin to overshoot your target, which might require a course correction. Once you pass through all of the rings on a given course, you'll have to actually land without making a person-sized indentation in the ground, which means you'll have to pull your parachute and navigate to a landing pad, typically not too far from the series of rings that you've just passed through. Once you deploy your parachute, you can control your skydiver and aim him towards the landing pad, with the ability to either descend quicker if you press forward on your D-pad, or stall your movement momentarily by pressing down on your D-pad. Be careful, though, because if you hold down for too long, you'll begin a rapid vertical descent, which can sometimes eliminate your forward momentum. As you approach the landing pad, you'll have to land in a bullseye of sorts, with more points available the closer to the center you land. There are also sometimes moving and or much smaller landing pads nearby, which represent special landing spots that automatically give you the full lesson score of 100 points before sending you off to a bonus game that can add even more points to your total. These special landing pads apply to every event other than the light plane, and can send you to one of three different bonus games. The first is effectively a high dive, where you control a penguin jumping off of a diving board and attempting to land in a pool of water, while the second lets you become a birdman who bounces on various platforms before landing in a target zone. The third bonus stage is also focused on controlling a birdman, only in that one, your goal is to fly as far as you can by flapping your wings and maintaining altitude, with your bonus points driven by how far you can fly, almost like a birdman-fueled javelin throw. The bonus stages can really give you an advantage in your flight lessons, as the extra points contribute to the score needed to pass that lesson, some of which can be tricky to complete. That said, 
the bonus stages are not a sure thing, and oftentimes the special landing zones are so tricky to land on that if you miss them, you'll likely fail the lesson entirely. It's definitely a bit of a risk versus reward kind of situation. Anyway, continuing our discussion of the various methods of flight, let's look at the hang glider next, which is a non-mechanical method of flying in a generally straight and sometimes banked direction. Controlling the hang glider involves a mix of the light plane and skydiving controls. The actual flight of the hang glider is very similar to the light plane, with the added wrinkle that, because you don't have an engine strapped to your back, you constantly lose altitude as you're attempting to complete your lesson, which often involves ascending to a certain height before progressing through a ring or two. Luckily, there are updrafts found around the course, which gives you a burst of upward air that can propel you higher into the sky. These are essential for both navigating around the lesson map as well as achieving your lesson objectives, as otherwise, you would never attain the appropriate height needed to be successful. Once you complete those objectives, you'll need to actually land on solid ground, and here the controls mimic the skydiving parachute controls. As you fly towards the landing pad, you can perform a flare maneuver, which effectively makes you vertical and stalls your forward momentum. Similar to skydiving, if you hold this move too long, you will drop like a rock, so you definitely want to make sure you use it only when needed to set up a proper landing. And finally, the fourth flying event is the Rocket Belt, which provides a behind-the-player perspective while navigating through the world. With the Rocket Belt, all motion is controlled by applying thrust to your rockets, with the ability to use either fast or slow jets to tailor your movement. Your control pad in this mode controls the direction your rocket belt faces, which allows you to move forward, backward, or side to side in the environment, while raising your altitude involves applying rocket thrust without any direction key pressed. Rocket belt events typically involve flying through rings or certain markers in the environment, followed by a landing on one of those bullseye landing pads we've been talking about. Here, though, the game provides an extra view mode, as you can switch to a tops-down view to ensure you're lining up with the appropriate spot beneath you prior to descending. That can be helpful for landing, as well as navigating some rings that are oriented horizontally. This is a nice touch, because as great as the Mode 7 graphics are in the game, there is definitely some tricky depth perception mechanics at play here. So, let's say you complete all events in a given lesson set, and you progress through the first four lesson sets, having an opportunity to work with each of the game's flight instructors. Well, if you manage that, you'll be presented with a bonus mission where you need to control an attack helicopter to rescue your flight instructors who have been kidnapped. Which means, you get to learn a new set of controls for maneuvering a helicopter. While piloting the helicopter, you have a tops-down view of the environment, similar to the default view when skydiving. You can control your rotor speed, which influences the amount of upward motion and ultimately altitude, and you can move your helicopter around the battlefield by pressing forward, back, left, and right on your control pad. You also have the ability to fire rockets using your shoulder buttons, because you are flying in a battlefield, and you will be shot at by various missile launchers embedded across the ground. Assuming you make your way past the enemy defenses, you'll be tasked with landing your helicopter on the enemy's helipad, which allows you to save your flight instructors and complete the mission. Now, let's say you get through that mission without much issue? Well, the game rewards you with another set of even harder flight lessons with the same instructors you just rescued, only this time... Each of the maps from the original four lesson sets have been modified in some way, most often related to weather, which can make navigation and piloting considerably more challenging than what you faced before. Get through those lessons, and you're faced with yet another helicopter rescue mission. Complete that one, and you've beaten the game and proved yourself a true ace pilot. Despite being a relatively simple concept, there is a good amount of content here, and the variety of gameplay modes means that it'll likely take some time before you become proficient enough with each type of aircraft or flying event to be able to complete the game. Because the game's events are point-driven, there's also the opportunity to simply test your own skills by competing in an event and trying to get a better overall score total than your last attempt. While it would have been nice to have online leaderboards or a way to compete with others, this is the Super Nintendo we're talking about, so expecting any degree of online multiplayer is just not reasonable. It's a testament to the fun of the game that I found myself wanting more ways to play, despite the inherent limitations of the time in which the game was created. We're going to talk more about the specific aspects of the game in just a moment, but first, as we always do, we have to take a look at the back of the box, because, as you all know, 
I love looking at the back of the box for these games. I love learning how different companies marketed their titles, especially around this time, because we didn't have the internet or YouTube to look up gameplay videos. We may have had magazines with reviews or previews or things like that, but still, a lot of times, when we made a buying decision, it was in the store as we're looking at the box. If the box looked cool, if the back of the box sounded cool, that likely drove us to buy a game. So, for Pilot Wings for the Super Nintendo, the back of the box says, Pilot Wings, the sky's the limit. Are you ready to earn your wings at the most exclusive flight school in the world? Then report immediately to the secret Pilot Wings Flight Club, where your training begins. You'll see the ground twist beneath you as you jump from your plane and attempt a precision skydive. Don't forget to pull your ripcord. You'll relive the early days of flying as you bring your biplane in for a pinpoint landing. After you master the basics, you'll be called on to test an experimental rocket pack, soar in a hang glider, and pilot an advanced attack helicopter in a hazardous rescue mission. The realism is incredible as the Super NES takes you airborne with multi-dimensional graphics, endless skylines, and the freedom to fly wherever you like. Do you have what it takes to earn your wings? Then get going. You're late for your first class. And then there are a few screenshots, one of which shows the biplane, another shows the hang glider, and then a couple more showing the map and the types of events that are out there. So I got to say, this box is actually pretty darn effective at selling the experience. I think it really does capture the feeling that you're going to be in this flight school. You're going to be doing a whole different set of events as you play the game. I just think it was a really effective box. And I did buy this box on release when I got my Super Nintendo there were a few games that came out with the Super Nintendo, and I got all of them at the time. I think it was, I think it was three that I got on day one, which was F-Zero, Pilot Wings, and Super Mario World, which was, of course, the pack-in title. So I have played Pilot Wings in some capacity for literally over 30 years. Anyway, we'll talk more about my personal experience with the game, especially during this most recent playthrough, and we're going to start by talking about the graphics. Pilot Wings is one of the most impressive games to grace the Super Nintendo system, and it is not even close. It's incredibly hard to believe that an SNES launch title could be so amazing from a graphical perspective, but Pilot Wings truly is. Each of the game's environments and modes of flight, characters, and objects are all designed well, but the real star of the graphical showcase is the Super Nintendo's Mode 7 graphics effects, which despite being graphics trickery, really does create the illusion of navigating a three-dimensional world. The fact that motion around that world was so smooth made it seem like Pilot Wings was performing some sort of magical spell to achieve such high performance combined with what appeared to be three-dimensional visuals. Now, I will say that when you get close to the ground and other environmental features in the game world, the illusion of depth will be soundly shattered, as you see gigantic pixely items that are obviously designed to be viewed from a distance. But that is a very small complaint. For the most part, the game looks amazing, even today. And if you haven't played the game before, prepare to be amazed at what Nintendo's 16-bit console can seemingly do. Moving on to the sound and music, the musical tracks throughout the game are mostly background tracks designed to mesh well with the action on the screen without overpowering the player with a bombastic score. And I believe the game achieves a perfect balance of catchy tunes coupled with understated themes. The game itself definitely feels enhanced by the inclusion of the music that was created for the game, which has almost a sort of jazzy elevator music kind of sound. Depending on your musical preferences, that might either sound great or not, but trust me, the music here is really well done. Sound effects, meanwhile, all sound great, with the appropriate engine, thrust, and wind sounds serving to enhance the feeling of flying around the various maps you'll play throughout the game. There are also a series of warning noises and success jingles, for lack of a better term, each of which sound like actual noises you'd probably hear in the cockpit of an airplane. Though in the event of errors, hopefully not, because that probably means you're in a dangerous situation. Regardless, I was impressed by the sound effects included in the game, and those effects, coupled with the music, served to create an auditory experience that made great use of the Super Nintendo sound hardware. Moving on to the narrative and story... There isn't much in the way of an actual story here, other than the fact that you're pursuing a series of pilot license certifications, and those certifications require you to learn how to complete various aviation events for a number of different flight instructors. 
That being said, the setup for the overall game actually works really well, and the pursuit of ever more advanced pilot licenses is a great framework to give some structure to the overall experience of playing the game. It provides just enough motivation to continue playing beyond the gameplay mechanics, which is really the star of the show for Pilot Wings. I don't have any complaints with how the development team structured the game, and in fact, I think more skill-based games can take a page from Pilot Wing's book on how to do a lightweight narrative framework the right way. Moving on to playability and controls, we have already talked a good bit about the controls for the various flight events in the game, so I'm not going to repeat those here. What I will say, though, is that the game controls like a dream, and if anyone has even a passing familiarity with other flight simulator kinds of games, you'll feel right at home here. I'll also mention that I thought Nintendo did a stellar job at simplifying each flight mechanic into a very approachable set of controls that pretty much anyone should be able to pick up and play without too much issue. That doesn't mean that there isn't skill needed, because there is, and some of the later events will likely cause many players some difficulty as they try to get the appropriate number of points to complete a given lesson. In this instance, practice makes perfect, and the more you play the game, the better you will get, until you're eventually flying through rings at a breakneck pace while you calculate the trajectory of your runway approach or landing angle and speed without skipping a beat. The act of getting better at the game actually feels really good, and you will likely notice a perceptible shift in your skill set as you progress through the various pilot license lessons. Which means, even though you're not truly learning to fly you are learning the game's version of flight as you play the game. So in essence, it truly is teaching you something, which is kind of cool. As far as playability goes, this is one of the most modern-feeling retro titles I've experienced in a while, which likely is a result of the fact that flight, and by extension flight simulation, controls are fairly standard and haven't changed over the years. What this means is that there is little if any learning curve other than needing to learn how the game's physics engine interacts with your movements in the game world. And speaking of physics, the game does an admirable job of simulating physics related to momentum, speed, velocity, and acceleration. Those simulation elements do introduce a bit of challenge to the overall experience, but nothing that can't be overcome with a bit of practice. And to be clear, you will need to practice a bit to truly progress in the game. The actual act of flying in each event is simple enough, but some of the later objectives, especially those on maps with various weather conditions, can be really tricky to get a high score on. I don't see this as a negative, it's simply something to be aware of. I should also mention that the helicopter missions can be a bit frustrating, as there are occasions where missile strikes hit your helicopter without actually seeing where their shots came from. Part of that is driven by the fact that some missile launchers are hidden in the world, only visible by seeing them actually shoot, or having your targeting reticle pass over one of those hidden areas. Other shots, though, seem to come from off-screen, which, while realistic given the way the game world is designed, can feel a bit cheap at times. This never rose to the point of frustration for me, but for anyone who has less patience than I do, you may hit a couple points where you might consider the game to be playing unfairly. Those moments, however, are few and far between, and for the most part, the game is simply awesome, and you'll likely find yourself gravitating towards one or two flight events as your favorite. For me, the Rocket Belt is hands down the winner. Interestingly, I've heard from others who indicated that the Rocket Belt is difficult to control or is otherwise harder than some of the other events, but I never really had an issue with it. That might be because of my pre-existing muscle memory with the game, but regardless, my own personal preference, and the event that I'd love to play more of, is definitely the Rocket Belt. Regardless of your own personal preferences, the bottom line is that the game plays and controls as well as you'd want any flight-based game to play and control. Don't be dissuaded by the lack of an analog control stick. This is one well-designed Super Nintendo experience. So overall, how did it feel to play Pilot Wings? The game simply felt great to play, and I found myself immediately losing myself in the ever-expanding set of lessons and challenges that the game threw at me. I had played Pilot Wings when I was younger, so I did have some familiarity coming into this particular playthrough. What I experienced, though, exceeded my expectations. Other than the visuals and limited world size, Pilot Wings didn't really feel like a classic title at all. Oddly, it felt modern in a way that surprised me. I've been playing so-called retro titles for a while, and typically when I sit down to play an older game, my mind automatically puts me into retro game mode. 
There was no need to do that here. Like I said, if the graphics were updated and the world tweaked just a little bit, perhaps to be more of an open world with multiple flight zones that you could navigate between and take on lessons as you saw fit, the game would likely appear to be as modern as any other game. It truly is that good. So what is our verdict on Pilot Wings? Well, you may have guessed by now, but Pilot Wings, from my perspective, is undoubtedly the newest inductee into our pantheon of classic gaming. It feels great to play, provides an engaging gameplay loop, doesn't overstay its welcome, and provides a flight simulation experience that was previously unimaginable on a home console. It is a true showcase title for the Super Nintendo system, and I'd argue that the Mode 7 effects in Pilot Wings feels more natural than nearly any other game released for the system, and it even feels more 3D than some true 3D titles released in later years. If you haven't played this one yet, consider this your invitation. There is a ton to like about Pilot Wings, and I'd venture a guess that if you play it for any period of time, you will experience something that both feels modern while still giving you those nostalgic retro vibes. Put simply, Pilot Wings is a great game, and it absolutely deserves its spot in our pantheon of classic gaming. was our episode on Pilot Wings. I hope you all enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed creating it. If you'd like to reach out, let me know how I'm doing, provide feedback, comments, suggestions, or just talk about classic games and technology in general. I would love to hear from you, and there are a few ways you can reach out. I have an X account with the handle at ClassicGamingT. I have an email address, which is ClassicGamingToday at gmail.com. And we have a Discord server. The link is in the show notes. Discord is the best way to get in touch with me and the rest of the community around this podcast. We have a ton of fun out on Discord. I highly encourage you all to check it out. I also encourage you all to check out our Patreon, which is patreon.com slash ClassicGamingToday. If you want even more Classic Gaming Today goodness, including an exclusive bi-weekly podcast, Patreon.com slash ClassicGamingToday is where it's at. Before we sign off for the week, I do want to mention that our next episode is going to be focused on the point-and-click adventure title, Broken Sword. So feel free to write in if you have any particularly fond or not-so-fond memories of that experience. At the same time, I recognize you're likely listening to this podcast on any number of podcast engines. And if you would feel so inclined, it would be great if you could leave us a review. This is not about bolstering star count. This is not about trying to harvest a ton of five-star ratings, though if that happens, awesome, it means we're doing something right. No, what it really is all about is trying to gather the feedback necessary to make this the best possible podcast I can. The only way to do that is to get feedback from all of you about what's working, what isn't working, and what you would love to see in a show. We get new listeners every single day, which is absolutely awesome. I want to continue to make sure that I am delivering the best possible podcast that I can. We'll be back in around a week with our next episode focused on Broken Sword. Until then, remember, sometimes the games of the past are just as good, if not better, than the games of today. Goodbye, everyone. <laughs>